Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision. Welcome one and all to Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Survive and Thrive. Um, tonight we have a very special lineup. Before we get into that, we just want to introduce a topic. Tonight we're talking about equality in ophthalmology. Um, we have a very special uh, guest moderator tonight, Dr. Ashley Brissett, a great friend of mine who is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Weill Cornell in New York. We have our panelists, Drs. David Felstead and Nandini Venketaswaran joining us as well. Uh, tonight, our very special guest and co-moderator is Dr. Lisa Nijim, MDJD, uh, another great friend of mine. She is the founder and medical director of Warrenville Eye Care in LASIK in the western suburbs of Chicago. She's also the immediate past president of Women in Ophthalmology and currently the first CEO of WIO, which is a, a great position that she's well suited for and doing a great job there. She's also a member of the Global Top 50 Power List under the category of Champion for Change. And um, she's coming off a wonderful WIO event that just happened, I believe, last week. And Lisa, with that brief introduction, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and talking about something that is uh, very important to all of us, but I know has been a, a very uh, important issue for you. Thank you for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, um, Lisa, we've known each other for a while, but we really got to know each other when we went on a trip. It was actually a Johnson & Johnson trip, and, and I wanna thank them particularly for sponsoring this show. We couldn't do these great meetings without the support of our great sponsors. So. Shout out to Johnson & Johnson, we appreciate their sponsorship. But we were on a trip with Johnson & Johnson to their R&D facility in Groningen um, yeah. uh, in the Netherlands. And it was during that time, we had a lot of downtime and we really got to know each other. And I, I had always been a fan of yours. It, you know, I've always known about your work, but it's always nice when you get to share a meal, you get to share a trip and get to know a little bit more about the person behind the, uh, the, the mystique of some, some of the KOLs that, that we know and, and we follow. So um, it, I, I, I learned um, a little bit more about your story and so we can get into that. But um, tonight we do, wanna, we do wanna dive into um, this topic of gender equality. Um, we're living in a time and a moment in America where um, equality is um, getting some well-deserved coverage um, and so I, I did think that it would be an appropriate time to talk about um, equality in ophthalmology. Um, so we're going to just sort of go through, um, and I, this is hopefully the most talking I will do tonight. David and I have, have promised um, that we are going to be more listening than, than talking because we really want to hear from you all. Um, and there's Cherie. There's Cherie Fathy, just out Sorry, of surgery, <laughs> saving vision, saving eyes. Yep. Welcome, Cherie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. Thank you for saving eyes at the, at the Will ER, Will's yeah. ER. Yeah, exactly. Appreciate that. So, um, Lisa, I would just love to know from your, from your standpoint, um, just as we kick this off, um, take us back to medical school or even when you were thinking about applying to medical school. What challenges did you face at that time? And did you think that there would be as many barriers in your way from that when you were maybe bright eyed and um, not knowing what the path forward was going to hold? Um, take us back in time to where you were at that, at that moment in time and what, what life was like for you. 
Sure. Uh, thank you for asking. And I think this is such an important topic for us to have a real discussion and come up with ways that we can better collaborate and work together moving forward. Uh, for me, uh, my pathway was a little bit different because I chose uh, early on that I wanted to do a combined program uh, in medical school and law school. And so uh, I looked at different doorways than um, maybe the average medical student. Uh, but I will say that um, for me, I didn't recognize the gender um, kind of disparities so much at that point in time in my uh, early education and career, because uh, I was raised with God bless his soul. My dad and both my parents supported myself and both uh, my sisters uh, that we could do anything we wanted. I, I never felt that I was, um, that there was anything, any door that wasn't open to me because I was female. Um, they instilled in us a confidence and a work ethic that uh, there was anything I, we wanted to do, that if we put our mind to it and we put the work into it, um, you know, with God's help, we, we could achieve it. So uh, when I was applying, I applied to medical school, I applied to MDJD joint programs, because there are only eight of them in the country. Uh, and I moved forward, I went ahead. So I think um, at that time, I didn't really sense so much a difference between um, looking at me as an applicant, as um, male or female, maybe there was and I didn't know, um, but I just put my head and went forward. Uh, I have noticed, and I know we'll be getting to this a little bit later, but uh, as I've moved ahead in my career and I've experienced different things being in practice, um, I have come to realize a little bit of uh, the gender differences that there are and some of the microaggressions that tend to occur more towards females. Uh, and so I'm more cognizant of that as is, but as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed college medical student, law student, I, I didn't see those. <laughs> Ashley, I'd love to know, and Nandini and Sheree, feel free to, to pipe up afterwards, but is that, does that mirror your experience? I mean, did you find that as a, as a medical student or as an applicant, um, things felt pretty uh, on an even keel? Because I do believe, if my stats are right, that about 50% of uh, medical students are female at this point, um, maybe even more than 50%, but I feel like we're getting pretty close to parity there. But Ashley, does that mirror, was your experience similar to that? I'd say it was fairly similar. I think the one thing that stands out to me is actually just seeing yourself represented in different subspecialties. Um, and I think that's maybe something that tends to keep certain specialties more male dominated or female dominated as well. And so, you know, if you're considering going into something like orthopedic surgery and not seeing many orthopedic surgeons that were women probably dissuaded me from pursuing that. I knew I wanted to do something surgical. Um, and so seeing myself maybe represented um, above, among certain specialties, I think drew me a little bit more towards that. And I think that's why it's so important to change the face of the different subspecialties within medicine um, and even within ophthalmology as well. Because I think then it just allows people to realize that, that they can pursue those things and to not be discouraged just because they might not see female representation in certain specialties. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Nandini, have you felt the same way? Yeah, I completely agree. And, and like uh, Dr. Nijim said, I felt like in high school and even college, 
bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, didn't really sense any disparities. Um, and I think I was largely, you know, very well supported as well in all of my career paths. In medical school, um, certainly I looked to find mentors who um, I think I could relate with and I saw a little bit of myself in. So especially in ophthalmology, my strongest mentor um, was Dr. Holly Heinemann. She's a female cornea specialist and, you know, she was on a K grant and she was accomplishing so much in terms of obtaining funding but also being a very high powered clinician. And I could see myself leading a life like her. She was married, she had children, she was, you know, balancing everything, getting a master's in public health, you know, in her first 10 years of practice. And so that to me was something that inspired me to pursue ophthalmology because I could see myself doing something similar to that. And I think I speak for many trainees in that they look for mentorship and people that they can relate to. Yeah, sure. You had, I think, a little bit of a maybe a dual um, mentor track. I know you had doctors Janice Law, um, uh, and then you also had the chairman of your program. Um, can you speak to that? I know you've talked about him being a sponsor before, but um, talk a little bit about your experience with mentors, both male and female. Absolutely. Um, I think that's it's such an important topic. I think you know, one of the reasons I was so attracted to ophthalmology was exactly for what Dr. Brissett said. There were so many outstanding female role models in, in ophthalmology and Dr. Law was one of them. Um, she was definitely someone who, um, you know, would, would point out the fact that she can have a fantastic and fulfilling career as well as a, a fantastic and fulfilling personal life. Um, and that meant a lot to me. Um, but at the same time, I think when you think of uh, people in more senior roles in ophthalmology, that um, disparity between males and females is still present and even larger than it is um, for us as trainees. So I think when you look at the statistics, like you said, 50% of medical students now are female. And um, I think the ophthalmology trainee ratio is like 43% are female. Um, and then um, as you get more towards attendingship, that number drops drastically. Um, and so, especially when you're looking at senior role models, um, you know, it's important to find those in your corner like Dr. Sternberg, who just want you to be the best ophthalmologist you can be. Um, and it, it's not necessarily an issue of gender. He just wants to support those who are most interested in, in um, you know, being successful in their fields. And so I think it's, it's really important, you know, in women in ophthalmology this weekend, we talked so much about having like a, a board of director mentors. Um, and I think it's so important to have people from all different perspectives who can sponsor and support you. And so I think having, um, you know, male and female mentors is, is especially critical. I'm going to echo that, Sheree, yeah. because yeah. I think that's one of the most crucial things. Uh, and Dr. Law is an excellent mentor, so you're lucky to have her. Uh, but having a mentorship team of both men and women uh, that you look up to, that can help support you, that can help provide opportunities uh, and promote you. Uh, I think that's key to help kind of bring this gender gap together and move more women into leadership positions, which is a hallmark of the mission of women in ophthalmology and something that we really strive to have programs and education and create opportunities for mentorship relationships to, uh, to form uh, for that reason uh, itself. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, we had talked about this a little bit offline earlier, Lisa, of just the fact that, you know, this is something that we're all going to have to tackle together. This isn't a, a, you know, gender equality is not a, a women's issue. This is an all of us issue. 
Right. Um, so I think that's something we need to kind of, you know, wrap our heads around. Um, I, I was doing some research um, before the show and, 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 and one of the articles I read said that 30 years ago, ophthalmology was 92% male and 8% female. Mm-hmm. Um, not, to, not to say that we don't have a ways to go and that there's, you know, that there's work to be done. Um, I can't imagine what it was like 30 years ago. Um, you know, Ashley, what you said, you know, trying to, you, you know, it's like if you have someone that, that looks like you, it, it, it's, it becomes real. Like my father was a physician. Um, he was my hero. And, you know, growing up, I said, oh, well, my dad does this. And so it was the most real thing for me. It was a pathway I saw as most likely because I could, he could do it. I'm his son. I can maybe do it as well. So I know the power of that. And, you know, it's something that I've not really thought of from the, from the other standpoint. Um, David, I'd, I'd like to bring you in here. Um, when you were in medical school, did you find there to be a more of a collaborative or competitive uh, disparity between the guys and the girls? Uh, I had, a, I had, I think there were more gunner guys in my medical school class. So I actually enjoyed studying with some of my uh, female friends. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if this is something that I just noticed or if this is something that is, there's a trend. What did you notice in med school? So much of this is regional dependent and med school dependent. And I think every med school has their own culture. Um, for me, you know, I just, I'm very different from the typical medical student. At that point, I had two kids and my medical study schedule was going to the library, listening to lectures, you know, doing my study questions. And then I had a small group of guys I studied with, but, um, you know, it's not that we didn't invite women into that circle. It's just who was my neighbors and who I went to church with. Um, I think there was just as many gunner female students as there were males in my subpopulation. And I think my school is about roughly 50, 50. Um, I will say it's, it's a little discouraging sometimes to hear, you know, stories of women trying to get into, you know, especially like orthopedics, you know, how challenging that can be. And I haven't heard that as much in ophthalmology and I'm maybe because where I trained at, we had many female ophthalmologists both within our department. And um, I think we just matched our first class of all female residents um, this upcoming year. So, um, you know, I think, I think it's getting better. I think we're making strides in the right direction, um, but we still have a ways to go. I'd have to admit my um, naivete um, on this topic because where, where I trained, most of the attendings were female. Like the entire pediat- pediatric ophthalmology department, um, Julia Stevens, everyone, our glaucoma department, Sheila Sanders, our cornea department, Seema Kapoor. Um, basically, I mean, I was trained by mostly female ophthalmologists. That's probably why I feel like I've, I've done so well. I've got good surgical skills. So I, I approach this, I was almost like, oh, what? This is, there's, a, there's a problem here. Of course, you know, I'm a guy, I'm, I don't really tune into these things. But I was surprised because I was trained by mostly female ophthalmologists. And, you know, I guess it just caught me off guard because, you know, sometimes if you're not in it, you don't see it. And so, um, Lisa, where do you see some of the biggest challenges that, you know, maybe there's things that people talk about and, and, and we could recite those, but I want you to tune into one thing we, we spoke about before was about the microaggressions where you're, you felt like you're fighting a two or three front war 
uh, meaning that you're you know coming out of training, starting your first job, you're you're young, and we had that in common. We talked about the difficulties of trying to manage people when they're older than you, but you know, young and female, and working with female staff who may be throwing shade at you. So, can you talk about your experience there because that kind of blew my mind. I don't know how you could deal with that. <laughs> well, I think uh, I'm, I'm much better dealing with it now than I was then. How about that? Because <laughs> I wasn't prepared for it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, yes, I think that's a common thing that a lot of women face and a lot of women ophthalmologists. And even if you're more so, if you're female and a minority, even uh, a greater amount of challenge and microaggressions that occur on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's important to recognize that, especially as young ophthalmologists beginning that transition from training to practice. Of course, as David said, there are different subpopulations and it's, and as you said, it depends on your environment. Uh, I had one environment when I started that was mostly female staff that worked there and generally they were very supportive. And then I had another environment where the clinic manager was female. She had worked with only male ophthalmologists prior. Uh, she was significantly older than I was um, and it was challenging. Uh, it was on a day-to-day -day basis uh, that there were microaggressions where uh, I think it was difficult for her to have um, me in the position being, um, you know, being younger and female and um, giving her things to do, uh, no matter how polite I was or how, you know, nicely I had asked. Uh, so, it was, uh, it just added to that, to the challenge that you get transitioning from kind of the ivory tower of an academic training institution uh, to being in real life private practice. And uh, just one more thing to deal with, in addition to patients and, you know, moving your surgical skills to a new environment. Uh, so it, it is something to be aware of uh, and hopefully to prepare yourself with uh, skills and workarounds and find uh, people at the institution or at the clinic that you're at who can be supportive and uh, figure out ways to kind of help better acclimate a, a team to having a female ophthalmologist if they've not had that experience before. Yeah, I want to just remind everyone um, who are on live, if you do have questions, you're free to use the question and answer uh, feature on Zoom, and if, if we can, we'll be happy to take some, some live questions. We have such a talented and wonderful panel tonight. Uh, we want to make sure we extend that uh, to you, everyone who's attending. Um, Ashley, you, uh, I believe, went straight into academics, and did, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, did you have um, a similar experience, or what was that transition like from residency into um, being on the other side as an attending? Um, did you find that there were particular um, issues you had to deal with that should not have been there or ways that you know, we should be looking to make this an uh, easier transition? Yeah, I think that kind of is a little bit par for the course, no matter where you are. I think a little bit of it comes from patients, just again, because people have, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily explicit bias, but they have implicit bias in terms of what they expect a doctor to look like. Um, and I get that a little bit with age and a little bit with gender. Um, and then it does come sometimes from colleagues as well. And so I do think you maybe have to prove yourself a little bit more as a new faculty and, and maybe that comes so more so if you're female. 
one thing you started to bring up earlier when we were talking about mentorship, which I think is a really important distinction, is the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. And so mentors are great people that can help guide you with decision making. They can help be a sounding board for, you know, maybe questions that you have. If you need to discuss, you know, some of these microaggressions that might have happened to you and looking for some advice, they can be really great people in your life for that direction. And you can have multiple mentors, you know, one that's maybe more research, one that's more clinical, one that's more personal. Um, and then sponsors are, you know, people that can actually help advance your career, which I think at the end of the day is something that we really need to strive for, even in ophthalmology as we're moving towards, you know, more than 50% of ophthalmologists now being women. Uh, but we need to get more women into positions, especially in academia, where they're in leadership roles, because that is still lacking. Um, and so in, in order to do that, we have to have what we deem sponsorship. So those are people that can actually help advance your career. So they can help put you on podiums. They can help get you involved in research so that you're getting publications. They can help put you into leadership, leadership positions within your academic institution or in other organizations like Women in Ophthalmology. Um, and so I think that's a really important part in terms of getting more female exposure and also getting more females in leadership roles. So I think seeking out both mentors and sponsors is something that's really important for anyone early in their career. And that's something that I tried to actively do as I started. Um, and, and one piece of advice I will give is to actually make it known what your goals are. Because sometimes people just don't know that you might want to become involved in research or might want to become more involved in the podium or even doing webinars like this. And if you reach out to people that you admire and you ask for opportunities or even just let them know that you're interested in those opportunities, then you'll come to mind when they're thinking about who to put together for a panel. Um, and so that's just a piece of advice that I would give for anyone starting early in their career. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Yeah, I have oh, to give a shout out. Oh, can I give a shout out real quick? My daughter, she, I'm her sponsor and she's, uh, <laughs> she's a sophomore at Furman right now and she's on this webinar tonight. So Peyton, <laughs> hello. I just want to say thank you for attending your dad's webinar. She's probably given me more lessons on this than anyone in the world. Her and her mother do a wonderful job keeping me informed on all, all of the issues. And uh, for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, please, Lisa, continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, what's your daughter's name? Peyton. Peyton. Hi, Peyton. Yes. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. Keep your dad in line. It's good. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's a couple things. Actually, first of what Ashley said, it, it's interesting because one of the themes that came out from the WIO meeting this weekend, a lot of the, uh, the leaders said exactly that. Say what you want. You, you know, this is uh, oftentimes we have goals and ideas of where we see ourselves or places that we want to get to. Uh, you need to let those people on your mentorship team who can be mentors, sponsors, or both, uh, let them know what you're trying to achieve and what your career path, where you see yourself. And then you can also get advice from them. Of if you see somebody who is doing what you think you might like to do, of what they think you should do along the way to achieve those same goals. And I think sometimes as women, we don't 
uh, do that as, um, as outwardly as, um, as sometimes our male colleagues do. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, just the level set everybody with the numbers. So 2017 was the first time that there was actually more women than men admitted into medical school overall. Uh, it, it is about 50-50. Um, in ophthalmology or getting into ophthalmology, uh, you look at the stats from the last few years, it's anywhere from uh, 37 to 41%, maybe the latest one is 43%, so it's somewhere around there. So we're getting closer to 50-50, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer and we're making improvements. Uh, and then as some of the other panelists have alluded to, uh, where things really drop off is when you start looking at who is in the leadership roles once you become an attending, once you are in practice. And if you look at editorial boards, who is invited to speak at conferences, who is the head of organizations, uh, who in academic departments, who are department chairs or even residency program directors, uh, that gap keeps uh, widening a lot more. So that's where we see uh, that we need to really focus on working together to get um, more women and a greater diversity in general in our leadership. I'm curious, and, and I'm, I just want to bring this up as a talking point. And, and so, you know, as we mentioned before, 30 years ago, um, so it was 92% male, 8% female. I would say that probably in a lot of senior leadership positions, you're looking at some people who've been in practice a long time. Obviously, we need to be active in trying to make sure that we are filling roles in a very diverse and inclusive way. Do you think that in some ways, as uh, we are training more female ophthalmologists who are then um, aging into those senior level, um, you know, been, being out of in practice 20, 25 years, do you think that the wave will sort of wash over? Um, or do you, do you feel like it's more than that? And that in some ways, there some you know, for reasons we can talk about, women are being kept out of those positions. I mean, is this, is this a numbers game where we're looking at, in the past, we just didn't have the numbers and now we're getting more and it will naturally correct itself? Or do you feel like there's something else going on? Or a combination? Because, you know, I think something that I am, concerns me often, and I'd love to hear from some of the other women on the panel, um, is watching a lot of, of women who are maybe a few years ahead of me in my you know, career or in my life and watching as they adopt the role of becoming a mother or adopt the role of a of, of family and watching how that can affect, you know, their their ability to, to partake in the workforce. I mean, especially with COVID, um, I think we've seen a lot of mothers, unfortunately, be pushed out of the workforce out of sheer necessity. Um, and I think that this is something on a systems level that that all of us need to address. If more and more of us are going, if more women are going to be become part of our field, then at some point we need to address the fact that, um, you know, that they need support from a, from childcare or family support. Oftentimes, you know, even if it's not children, women may be the people who get to take care of their parents or take care of their extended family members. Um, you know, women support the village oftentimes. And so I think um, that's something that I'm very keenly aware of as someone who hopes to have a family in the future and, and hopes to still have a, a very active practice. Um, and something that I look to senior members for, and I've definitely seen some cases where people make it work, and I've seen some cases where, you know, they they don't, um, or or perhaps they choose choose not to. Um, I think something that's really interesting that um, 
I think it was in uh, Dr. Colby's editorial was talking about how women may have a different trajectory in their careers, that they may have a few years where they're less active, where men are getting more active. And then once they've reached a certain point and they're able to sort of re-enter the workplace fully, you see they are publishing in higher impact journals, they're publishing more frequently, they're reaching their peaks at a, at a trajectory that's a little bit later than men. So, you know, maybe we also need to rethink about how these people get promotion and tenure, et cetera, in their careers because their trajectory may naturally be different because they are supporting a lot of people along the way. A fantastic point. And actually, I think in uh, the same article, uh, Dr. Colby had mentioned that, you know, in, in some cases, um, because of the bandwidth that we all have, but, uh, you know, the, the number of demands that are placed, on, unfairly placed um, on the shoulders of our female colleagues sometimes zaps the bandwidth. And when even when they're offered um, an opportunity to be an editor of a journal or to take on leadership roles, guess what? They can't. It's not that they don't want to or not qualified for. It's that they've got so many other things that they're doing. Uh, they, one more thing like that um, doesn't look appealing or doesn't sound appealing. And so, you know, that's a larger conversation than we have time to talk about tonight. But I think that as guys, um, David, you can speak this a little bit too, but like for me, I'm just competitive. You know, I want to be number one. And that means that, you know, I'm an ophthalmologist and we're all ophthalmologists and we're all like competing to be number one. And sometimes I don't stop to think like, okay, we're not competing on a, on a equal playing field. And I, I was, you know, I was born sliding into home and I think I hit a home run. Um, and sometimes you don't stop to think about the challenges that the people that you are working with or collaborating with go through. I mean, David, have you had this revelation yet? Cause it's, it's important <laughs> to think about. Walking into medical school on my first day, I was very much a gunner, very much competitive, and you have to be to match, I think. Um, but as I progressed to be a parent of four kids through residency, it became very, very hard to compete on all fronts. Um, and so, you know, I was reading an article about disparity in uh, female ophthalmologists and male ophthalmologists. And one of the comments that was made in JAMA in 2016 was that um, some females may feel less likely to obtain competitive fellowships, specifically in vitro, retinal, and refractive, um, based on um, unequal treatment by peers, and maybe perhaps that parenting slows their, prog their progression. Um, and I've, I felt that way a lot through my, um, through my residency training, and I'm not a female. Um, you know, I had a wife that stayed at home and took care of the kids for the most part. Um, so I couldn't imagine, you know, if I was a female, had children early on in a career, how much... Um, weight that would place and how hard it'd be to compete. Yeah, that's something we have in common. And we've talked about that before. You know, neither, neither one of us really felt like we could even afford to do a fellowship. And, and again, if, if, if we were females in that role, how much harder, I mean, we would have been sunk completely. Sure. Um, I want to another, touch, sorry, Gary, yeah, I want to touch on please. the answer to your question. Yeah. Because you asked the question, is this going to correct itself over time, uh, or do we need to be proactive? And I, 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 I let the record stay. I said, I think we need to be proactive. Okay. <laughs> but sorry, yes, sorry. please go forward. I misheard. I misheard. No, nope, that's good. That's good. Uh, which is something else we all need to do, listen more to each other so that okay. we pick up those points. Um, but uh, I, I, so, all right, so I absolutely agree with you 
that we need to be proactive. Uh, there have actually been numerous studies now showing that even though there has been an increasing number of women uh, in the ophthalmic field, uh, the rate at which women are being promoted or are being moved into leadership position is still not concomitant with the rate of entry. And it's, um, it's all very, um, the RANSCO, which is the um, Ophthalmology Society from Australia, actually they published a couple papers on this and they touched on what uh, Cherie was talking about, um, which is we need to be cognizant of the fact that women do bear the responsibilities oftentimes at home and at work. And there may be a time where they are less uh, productive. Well, it's not even less productive, but they're not able to write research grants and whatnot. They're still seeing patients clinically, still making contributions there. Uh, but that we need to think, rethink about making adjustments for re-entry into the workforce and not simply uh, grading people on whether they've been, uh, you know, in the, with the same, expectations and the same amount in grants and that type of stuff uh, that women may not have access to while they're trying to balance child rearing with everything else earlier in their careers. Yeah, that's, that's very important and a great point. That's a great point. Um, Nandini, did you feel, um, you know, you did a, you, you're a rock star. So first of all, um, but did you feel any sort of pressure or resistance? I mean, you obtained a very competitive fellowship at Duke, um, you know, as Dave and I were talking, did that seem to ring true? Did, did it seem like you may have been at a disadvantage or did you feel like you had um, some pretty good opportunities in front of you? Really, I mean, I did residency down in Miami at Bascom Palmer and our, the majority of our graduates go into fellowship. So, and most of the residency classes were pretty well balanced in terms of the number of female and male residents. And so I felt like the support was was really fantastic. I never felt that, um, that I was in any way, you know, disserviced or you know, unable to obtain what I wanted to. Um, I think certainly there were conversations that came up as I was deciding my subspecialty as to what subspecialties were more female friendly, um, as opposed to being male friendly in terms of the emergency workload, the need to go in at night and you know perform more surgeries or more trauma, etc. And so I had, you know, I had faculty members give me advice on the whole gamut in terms of what they thought if I should go into anterior segment or retina. Um, but ultimately, as a cornea fellowship applicant, there were numerous female applicants, I would say almost more than males, I thought, in the circuit. So that was very encouraging. And I think as someone that's just about to start in practice, I think it's it is reassuring to me how many women I am seeing that are, you know, five to 10 years out of their career, so prominent on the podium and being you know, so productive and so successful. And that to me is very reassuring in terms of beginning that wave of change. I don't think this is gonna happen overnight. I think there's certainly a lot of, you know, uphill battles that we need to still go through, but I certainly think we're going in the right direction. A lot of my female mentors always say women need to plan just a little more. And I think that kind of holds true in terms of when you think about starting a family and things like that, um, because, I don't think you can totally plan all of that. You know, like all of us are used to having a five-year plan. We know what we want to achieve when, but I think life just happens. And so for women that might be a little more difficult because we have more responsibilities, you know, traditionally in the household and raising families, being mothers, et cetera. And so that's something that as women, we have to kind of work through. Yeah. 
Ashley, I'd like to bring you in on this conversation based on something you said earlier, which was um, you felt like in medical school, ophthalmology was open because you saw people who looked like you and, were, and you felt represented. And so that seemed like a logical choice. Um, I think we need to talk about underrepresented minorities in ophthalmology. Uh, I do feel like uh, while we may be making some traction, although we know we have some more work to do in gender equality, um, I think that we can look around and, and see that there is um, more of a uh, disparity in underrepresented minorities in ophthalmology. Um, do you have any comments on that, on ways that you think that we can help with that or um, you know, helping to define the problem or, or the solution either way? Yeah, I mean, I can only kind of imagine what that must be like. I, I know what my experience was like as a woman, and I can't imagine being also, you know, possibly like a woman of color in that kind of position. Um, and so I think one thing that's important is just recognition. Um, I think educating ourselves that there are differences, not letting our implicit biases kind of take control and turning a blind eye and saying that no, things should be equal for everyone, that that doesn't exist because they think it does. So I think just recognition is, is one of the first steps. Um, I know at my institution, we have uh, different committees on diversity. Um, so ensuring diversity hiring and diversity within our medical institution, I think that's really important as well until we get to the point where we do have more equality. So I think that that can help. Um, and as I mentioned, even just recognition that, that this is kind of a concern um, going forward. Lisa, I know you had, um, we had talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, would you like to talk about the mentorship program that, that we had spoke about earlier? Sure. So I think this is a really important initiative that uh, Dr. Keith Carter uh, took on when he was president of the Academy as the mom program, the um, mentoring uh, ophthalmology, minority ophthalmology mentoring program, which is a joint partnership between the AAO and the AUPO, the Association of University Professors of Ophthalmology. And I think it's a key uh, to uh, bring underrepresented minorities uh, to help mentor them and be able to pair them up with ophthalmologists to mentor them through the application process uh, to help them succeed in obtaining ophthalmology residencies because there is, uh, the lack of diversity in ophthalmology uh, that is, is prominent. And at Women in Ophthalmology, we actually uh, made it, we supported that program as well as there several other societies have supported that program as well. And then this year, we also instituted a scholarship um, for an underrepresented minority woman uh, to be able to come to the uh, annual meeting for WIO uh, and uh, again be exposed to everything that we have there and hopefully create additional mentorship uh, that uh, that naturally occurs at our meeting. So I think it's it's critically important. Uh, it is something that we recognize as a problem. And I think it's the first step in our specialty uh, to be able to, um, to solve or uh, address that problem as well. So as, <clears throat> excuse me, as we wrap up, we've got about four more minutes left in, in this podcast. I would love just to give each of you um, just a bit of time to say, as guys, what can we do to be part of the solution? We, 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 I just want to give each of you a, a moment. How can we help? We want to be part of the solution. What do we do? Nandini, I'll start with you. Well, 
I think, I think guys do a great job, but it's always important, I think, for males and females just to be aware and to educate yourselves on some of the disparities because some of these biases are very implicit. Implicit, you're not doing it intentionally. Some of it is very unintentional. And so, you know, attending webinars like this or going to leadership courses can really educate all of us on what we're doing unintentionally. And I th think that can be, you know, very helpful in terms of reducing those disparities in, in academics and private practice in the workplace, et cetera. So I would just say education is key. Sheree, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Nandini. I think, you know, there's a huge um, role to be had from the bystander effect as well. So if a man notices that a, you know, a, a female coworker is being talked down to either by, you know, a patient who doesn't recognize that they're a fellow physician or maybe by their staff, that they can speak up and say something and that can mean a lot. Um, and also, you know, demanding pay parity, being, um, you know, demanding equal um, compensation, equal uh, attention to both. Uh, they play a huge role in that. Ashley, any thoughts on ways that we can all help? Yeah, I think, you know, echoing that, just be an ally. So if you see all male panel, you know, on a conference that's coming up, shoot someone an email or say something and say, you know, we should have some other representation. Maybe that's a consideration. Maybe even refuse to speak on something if it's all male and there's no female representation. Continuing to talk about this, ask how you can help, ask how you can be an ally. I think that's just all really important. Wonderful. Lisa, I'm gonna give you the final word. What, what should we be doing to help and how can we be did, the best Did David talk? <laughs> What's that? I, yeah, I've, I've given my, my words. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, all right, you gave your word. All right, I had to mute for a second uh, to, to get to the ones over here to be quiet. Um, first of all, I want to, I just want to say thank you for having this conversation, because I think this is one of the most important things that we can do is have open dialogue about how we can collaborate and work together. Uh, I think that's the um, that's the key, right? Uh, we need to have both men and women involved in this conversation. Uh, this is something, as you said um, from the get-go, this is, this is not something that's one gender issue. This is something that we're only going to be able to solve when we work together. But I do think there are specific things that our male colleagues can do to help uh, solve this sooner. Um, and I've written them down. So uh, encourage um, uh, opportunities for awards and uh, research. Think about your female colleagues when there are opportunities. Uh, what you said before and kind of what some of the other panelists said, uh, we implicitly, unintentionally, we tend to recommend the people that we see. So if we see all male panels, we tend to recommend other males. Uh, you can break that cycle by recommending uh, females that you know that are accomplished and they're doing uh, great work. Um, you want to try and build and strengthen uh, your female colleagues and uh, create, help them create networks that provide support to women at all stages of their careers. Uh, so I think um, speaking up for your female colleagues and working together uh, to achieve more parity uh, on panels, in academic institutions, on speakers bureaus, uh, we can all work together to, uh, to make this a conversation of the past. Well, we're just going to leave it there. You've said it, you all have just contributed so much to this. I, I feel privileged to count you all as friends and, and mentors and colleagues. 
Um, I always love learning and listening. So thank you so much uh, for coming on the, the webinar tonight. I wanna especially thank Johnson & Johnson for sponsoring this uh, Ophthalmology Off the Grid Survive and Thrive. And uh, until next time, thanks again, bye-bye. Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.